0: So, did you ever read Nineteen Eighty-Four? Uh, I had to read it for school. I remember not liking it. I thought it kind of. It's sucked. okay. It's
1: it's it's not even that good. But there's there's one little bit in it. Okay, that's that's rich coming from a podcaster. Also, you know, it's you know, British people. That's true. <laughs> Welcome to We Talk About Dead People, a podcast where we talk about dead people most of the time. I'm your host, Aaron C., and I'm here with my good friend and co-host, George. Say hi, George. Howdy, howdy. How's it going over there? Oh, it's, uh, sleeting currently. That's disgusting. It's just slushy here and gray, and it was kind of interesting. I, I, <laughs> uh, my parents were looking out the window and they're like, Aaron, come quick. I said, what's up? And I said, you can see the sky. (laughs) It's a Christmas miracle. So I run over and there's just this break in the gray clouds and it's just this dinky patch of blue sky. (laughs) And I'm like, wow, that's so good to see. It's been like days since we've seen it. And then (laughs) my mom goes, you can almost see the sun too. And my dad goes, it looks kind of like the moon because it's so dim. Yeah, we're all all, uh, supplementing with vitamin D (laughs) to stay on top of the winter. (laughs) It's good stuff. Anyway, we hope to keep our listeners entertained and interested while we break down various members of the odd exciting family that is humanity. The way this works is that George and I will do our amateurs best to give a basic account of the major events. Oh, this is completely wrong because we're not doing this at all. We're going to talk about uh, the major events of, say, oh, I don't know, all of human history. And we're going to try to give a fairly accurate depiction of actually what's going on, which is almost impossible to do, but it's not going to stop us from trying anyway. So, George... Who do we have this time?
0: (laughs) Well, I know that lead up probably got all the listeners excited, thinking we're finally going to get my take on the Indo-European hypothesis, but sadly, (laughs) sadly, that is, that is. it's coming, it's coming, don't worry, but not this week. This week, we are talking about nobody, I guess, Great. Uh, because what we're going to be talking about is apparently psychological warfare, because Aaron spent too much time on the internet again.
1: No, I literally. Mm, how dare you? I I studied this in college, and I read actual books and thing. I poured through libraries and like leaf through old texts to figure this one out. But I did it like, yeah, about five years ago. <laughs> ah, yes, you scrolled through old texts. <laughs> I texted through old scrolls and scrolled through old texts to bring you this information. Um, which is easy to find, not scary at all, and yet, and yet nobody seems to know what they're talking about when they talk about psychological warfare. So, I thought I'd weigh in because it has been a year of it, and we it is a few days after the new year at the time of this recording. Already, tired and everyone of it. thinks <laughs> everyone thinks it's over now that the magic number has changed. But I have bad news. Yep, I've already it's, written
0: this year off as a loss. It's just it's not going anywhere good. Tell me, does Antarctica come into this at all?
1: No, there's no Antarctica no. this time. I mean, I could probably pull in Antarctica a little bit if I wanted to. C- I mean, probably. I mean,
0: I'm always down for Antarctica posting.
1: Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I always love, it, love a, a good little rabbit hole on Antarctica, but we've, uh, we've covered that. So Yeah. Not, I was enough, thinking
0: this- not enough, though. We'll come back to it. And I'm going to come back to it, because that ATM on Antarctica is going to get blown up. I swear to God.
1: If we don't blow it up on stream, like, live on Twitter or something like that, um, I think the listeners are gonna be very disappointed, but, um, yeah, anyway. Maybe anyway. that'll
0: be a Christmas special next I year. Just that'll be a Christmas yeah, yeah. special. Live episode as we blow up an ATM in Antarctica.
1: I'm so down.
0: <laughs> we can start a GoFundMe uh, to get us out of whatever CIA black site they throw us into.
1: Ah, uh, well, we've already been in a couple of those, but it hasn't stopped us from making this show. <laughs> they've they've tried. They've tried. They've tried, but we just keep punching back, and we're gonna keep punching because everyone thinks it's over because 2020 is over, and the bad news is that it it will basically never be over, um, till uh, kingdom come and trumpet sound as the uh, the old pirate in Pirates of the Caribbean said, at the end of that the last Disney movie I ever watched. <laughs> <laughs> Ah, yes. Well, I think that's enough uh, that's enough fooling around up here. I think it's time to get down to serious business in the Psychological Warfare Lab. We have one of those now.
0: It's another shipping container, isn't it?
1: Yes, it is. <laughs> okay,
0: good. It was getting kind of full. I wanted to bring a new coffee maker in, so I'm glad we have some extra space now.
1: Well... You're gonna, it's, okay, we can probably fit a coffee maker in there, but it's so full of books and things that, you know, all the books I studied to bring this information to the, to our valued listeners and patrons.
0: <laughs> well, the library will realize they're missing eventually, and then we'll have space. Let's do it. <laughs> all right, let's do it. All right, pretty good for a cold open. That sounds like the name of a thriller, cold open. <laughs> Yeah, like, I got, a, like a murder in Antarctica.
1: If he stops broadcasting, the entire audience dies. <laughs> <laughs> Why does it feel like the whole world is on fire? Why is misery normalized and even celebrated? Why do many of us feel like we live in hell when things are actually not all that bad? Debatable. <laughs> what the hell is going on out there anyway? Find out on this special episode of We Talk About Dead People, where we talk about how to kill people with words. So, George, if you had to wage war on the population of the entire world, what means would you use, and what would be your end game?
0: Hmm. <laughs> hmm. I feel like this is a trick question. It's not. <laughs> I mean, this is this episode isn't about central banking, is it?
1: No, it's not about banks.
0: Because, <laughs> I mean, I was just going to say, if you look at the countries that don't participate in the international central banking system, uh, it's usually a good way to have the whole world go to war against you. Uh, so... Yeah, probably something with banks and finance and numbers that my little brain can't comprehend. And, um, yeah, just basically what all those bastards in suits seem to do. Yeah, they're
1: pretty- Wait a minute, I'm wearing a suit. There's something. (laughs) Damn it, I'm one of them! You're wearing a suit right now? Yes, I am. Oh, dear God. Well, I'm glad you came dressed. I'm just wearing a t-shirt that says, here to help. I did take my tie off, though. Oh wow! Well, so you're not a you're not a banker or a debt slave anymore. Great! <laughs> I have
0: I have uh. nothing to lose but my chains. <laughs>
1: <laughs> That's right. Well, I I think that would probably work because it appears to have worked rather well throughout history. Just control the cash inflow and influx in Venice or whatever the conspiracy theorists are saying these days, and you run run the planet. Allegedly, who knows? Now, if I had to wage war. On the entire world. And uh, I had to pick an end game. It would be quite simple. I would simply devise surreptitious ways in which to make everyone hate themselves and want to die. And that sounds impossible because, you know, if you just found some normal people living and doing their thing and, you know, maybe having a little farm and taking care of some chickens or something like that, you know, just being a little self-sufficient, you would think it would be kind of hard to convince them that everything is lost if every day was... You know, like a little bit of a, you know, made sense. You weren't just working for dollars. It was, you know, you had to do the work or the chickens would die and you wouldn't get to eat your chicken dinner, something like that. No, if 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 I was going to have to wage war in a population like that, I would simply put a box in everyone's living room that tells them what to think. And then I would tell them to think that they're awful and that they should die and that everything about everything that they do is pointless. And the only solution is to take Zoloft and, uh, Bow before Tucker Carls, <laughs> and it would probably work uh, because it appears to have worked, and my end game would of course be a uh, a population that can't think of anything to do on a on a on a slow day because they're just so strung out by excitement from the media that they can't see a, the point of doing anything other than subscribing to Disney plus again, so it's a little cynical, but <laughs> it might work. <laughs> Oh boy, I'm trying to make this funny, but it's really
0: hard to make this funny. I'm just trying to remember the last time I actually watched a television. Like sat in front of a TV? Yeah, I don't even know. When was the last time you looked at
1: your phone? There's your answer. (laughs) Last
0: time I looked at my phone, I was texting you
1: about when we were starting. You were sending me memes. Are (laughs) you? You're the one doing this. I told you it would work. (laughs) So you just get control of the money and I'll get control of people's minds and then we'll have it made in the shade and we can finally take over the world and make every billboard just say, we talk about dead people. Listen now, slave. Oh, <laughs> uh, yes. Well, it's hard to bring this into uh into um, uh, 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 a, a, uh, a, what's the word? A pragmatic frame because well, it's funny was- that you,
0: you said that about us being made in the shade, because I don't know if you saw that recent thing about Bill Gates funding some plan to dim the sun. <laughs> what? What is that man doing now? Uh, yeah, apparently he was spending a lot of money on some weird uh, project, I think with Harvard, that is going to try to like put an extra layer of the atmosphere to dim the sun or something. So, literally, made in the shade.
1: Wait, hang on. I thought the whole point was to, like, make the sun less hot so the Earth didn't burn up. Were the global warming people lying to me? Well, apparently, apparently I think that's what the, uh, the ostensible
0: purpose is, is by adding some sort of reflective layer in the atmosphere that makes the sun less bright. It will make the Earth colder or something. This should, ah. which just sounds like a way to accidentally start an Ice Age. Yeah, then maybe. Again, the Ice Age was good times. I trust
1: Al Gore and Bill Gates. There was, no, there was no Facebook during the Ice Age. I trust Ice Age Facebook. <laughs> they didn't have likes or dislikes, just star ratings, like old YouTube. Oh. Uh, don't you remember that? The star rating system on Netflix and YouTube, you could actually see what was good and what wasn't being review bombed or whatever. Oh, Well, now they only have the algorithm on Netflix. The,
0: so. Yeah, the percent match on Netflix, which is just crap. And again, I don't have Netflix anymore, so I don't the know. The
1: algorithm has decided that you need this kind of demoralization today. Open wide. Man, I Yeah, open wide. Yeah, so okay, it, let me just let me just f- try to frame this up a little bit before I just start going going right at it because here's the deal. Okay, let me just give you a little bit of my story, all right? So, uh, as you know, I was a bright-eyed and bushy-tailed college student several years ago and I wanted to go to school and learn how to do movie magic.
0: And I'm hearing that sound effect in my head whenever they start like the the childhood backstory. There's like some birds chirping as the the camera slowly opens back up to the childhood
1: scene. Well, see, that's how I envisioned it as well <laughs> because I really, really liked movies, <laughs> and I felt like I was in a movie. I was going to go to school and learn how to make movies, and that you know I was going to make and real- that
0: instead. Instead, you started hanging out with a bunch of weirdos, and
1: well. <laughs> I mean that's your experience. I didn't hang out with that many weirdos except for you. But <laughs> <laughs> anyway, so I I had this vision of the future where I was going to tell stories for a living and it was it was going to be, you know, kind of wonderful. I really really wanted to make nice stories that made people feel good and you know want to get up in the morning and go do things cuz all my favorite movies growing up had been inspiring or or you know taught you something or had something nice to say or you know had some good music at least, but You know, when I got there, there was this transition that was occurring within film that was like, oh, we're not making movies that are good anymore. We're making movies that say something important! And everybody was convinced, especially the younger freshmen, they were convinced that they were going to say the most important thing with their little short film that they shot in the afternoon and edited in the evening and turned in the next morning. Right, everybody went from being like, having a mission of like, let's add positive change to the world to let's just have a mission and it doesn't matter what the end is, even if it's nuts.
0: (laughs) And then there was Aaron, whose deal was just let's just have George in a trench coat running around chasing people. Well,
1: that was <laughs> that was my early phase. <laughs> I have I have matured since then, um, but yes, I used to believe that movies and radio and podcasts and all the sponsor stuff. I used to believe that these things were good because they used to be kind of good. Like they, you know, everyone talks about, well, oh, there are all these good movies in the eighties and the nineties and the early two thousands, and like everyone else is like just sort of accepting what's being thrown at them now, and, well, I'm here to tell you that that's fine. You do whatever you want. I'm not, this is no condemnation on you, but I picked up some information there that I didn't fully, uh, I don't know, integrate into my understanding of the world in which we live until I was long out of college in the dream of becoming a uh, a uh, special boy in special Hollywood with the special camera and the special crew and everything. I, all of those faded away long ago, so I'm not, I'm not, uh... <laughs>
0: The special nighttime gatherings. Yes,
1: the disillusionment is... is The
0: special symbols. Would
1: you just quit it? (laughs) We're trying to distance ourselves from conspiracy theories. No, so the other thing that happened after studying film is that I was exposed to a lot of communication theory, which I never took an interest in, and honestly, most of those classes I almost fell asleep in because they didn't seem to be connected to my dream of making nice movies. But the information stuck with me nonetheless and it didn't go anywhere, and I kept thinking about it and kept researching it. And this this whole year, um, this last 20 this this might as well be our, our end of the 2021 um, new year episode, because we're basically gonna talk about how my thinking changed from twenty in twenty twenty. Okay, so I just I just started seeing a lot of people saying it's psychological warfare. This is psychological warfare. Um, and people say it's a psyop, and you know, you see people uh, freaking like conspiracy theorist types freaking out, they're gonna take over everything. And it's like, okay, all right, calm down.
0: Well, just remember Alex Jones was right about the gay frogs. <sighs> Alex just Jones, saying, this is nothing against Alex Jones. <laughs> I'm just saying, if there's one thing I've learned over the past year, it's that
1: conspiracy theories. Maybe they're right. Well, uh, okay. L- let's be careful because what I'm going to talk about is going to sound like, okay, let's talk about boxes real quick, okay? I say something's a conspiracy theory, and 90% of the population of the world goes, then it's nonsense, or then it's crazy. Then you'd have to be crazy to believe it, or you have to be some sort of like, you know, secret researcher who has all of the books, you know, oh, you you read um, Behold a Pale Horse or whatever, all these, you know, it's this- out there stuff to talk about what actually occurs within psychological warfare. Well, I really want to bring this down to a pragmatic level because when people say or hear the word PSYOP, typically what they're thinking of is something that didn't happen, right? PSYOPs don't happen. It's just, you know, nobody organizes or engineers any of these things. And I can tell you from a point of certainty and (laughs) from a point of evidence that they absolutely are organized frequently, all the time, and they're leveraged against you and me, and everybody around us. It's just the word gets a bad rap, so I've decided to, to uh, reframe psychological warfare into uh, one short phrase. It's just a prank, bro. Um, so instead of calling it psychological warfare, I'm going to call it prank warfare, because that's basically what it is. Um, will you accept that framing?
0: I'm just looking down throughout the script, and you keep calling it uh,
1: psychological warfare. I've changed the script. Altered the okay. script. Pray I do not alter it further. That one's for you, Sith. Anyway, <clears throat> Psy- psychological warfare does have a military classification. It's in all caps, PSY WAR, because they like, you know, really big all caps letters. lack creativity. Yeah, they can... <laughs> that's one way to put it. They like to put big capital letters of, like, shortened newspeak at the top of all their Documents. Um, they call it Cywar, they've called it Cywar since, you know, it became, like, a real, essentially, theater of operations. And it's a phrase, like I said, that gets thrown around a lot, um, but it's really just, like, a prank channel on YouTube. Um, it's, it's just, you know, whoever's in power, whoever has your attention, telling you something is something, and when it's really just not that way. Um, here's an example of a, of a, like a very small psychological operation. Try moving a co coffee cup to a different spot on the shelf every day <laughs> and see what they do. Um, or do what they, all those psychology students do when they start their freshman year and they run a social experiment by like facing the elevator wall and just standing there and waiting to see if anybody copies them. Um, so wor- so you know what we, you know what we call those people? Hmm psychopaths right and by those people i mean first year psychology students (laughs) (laughs) that one's also for you seth so basically you got to think of psychological operations whether they're government or corporate corporation sponsored they're basically pranks or scams to get you to do something buy something believe something be some way you know put yourself into a little box get yourself vanned you know like that's i
0: knew the government was trying to get me to sell herbalife
1: <laughs> well, it's too late for you now, and I won't be buying any. So here, here's what. Did
0: you know that you can work from home? <laughs>
1: <laughs> did you? Did you? Oh, we all know now, don't we? <laughs> okay, so I just want to make that clear. It's not a conspiracy theory, it's not a joke, and it's not something to, seer, to sneer at because um, most people are completely unaware of how frequently these things are run on the public mind and it's not scary it's just stupid okay it's 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 stupid how well it works uh and i think that's why i felt moved to actually cover this and put a historical spin on it because it's a tale as old as time it's been around forever um and uh one to put a fine point on it i would just say the greatest trick the devil ever pulled was convincing the world that psyops are just conspiracy theories. Uh, because psy- war- psychological warfare, or prank wars, as we're going to be calling them, if I can remember, prank wars work so well that they've virtually re- replaced open conflict entirely. And that's kind of... It sounds like I'm saying something big there, but it's actually kind of normalized at this point. We don't have big conventional wars where we send people in tanks to go blow each other up. We just convince the other countries to just not do anything, become lazy or you know complacent or... You know, we, we lull them to sleep with nice little stories, and we let them play their video games. And, okay, now I'm starting to sound like an older person than I am. So, but, at, what,
0: at what point do I get my fleet of Toyota Hiluxes, my pallet of cash, and crate of Kalashnikovs from the CIA? Uh,
1: it's coming. Just, just hold on. <laughs> uh, yeah, I mean,
0: the postal service
1: has been slow lately, so
0: I'm sure it's on the way. It's on the way.
1: Um, so I thought I thought I'd, what I'd start with here just to make sure that we're not talking in like really, really heady space of most conspiracy theories who are tr- or conspiracy theorists who are you know uh, dutifully trusting the plan and you know browsing their little boards looking for hope. Um, <laughs> let's talk about some some real world prank wars uh, that appear to have happened um, or at least seem like they could have happened. And I'll begin with the first psychological or prank war that I ever heard of. And that was when I was a wee lad, and my dear mother set me on her knee and said to me, Son, let me tell you what a psyop looks like. And then she told me the story of Gideon from the Bible. Do you know the story of Gideon? There was a veggie Tales about it. Well, would you care to relay it to us?
0: I'll probably get the details wrong. It's been a while.
1: Okay. Well, I don't have all the details either, but it's quite simple, okay? And I'll simplify, and there's going to be some, some Bible people. There out was there.
0: something about drinking water.
1: Yeah. That's. That's a small part of the story. So, basically, there's okay. this dude named Gideon, and he's got these dudes to de- defeat in this valley. And it's this really powerful, very large army. I don't even remember what they're called. Uh, my mother would be so The, the something-ites,
0: of- probably. Probably
1: the something-ites. <laughs> so, Gideon gets all the boys together, and he's like, All right, we gotta go fight him," and nobody wants to do it, because it's a big, scary army, and they're ites. So, you know, that's very bad. Uh, and Gideon does this little thing where he's like, Okay, I'm... Uh, And please forgive me, Lord, for I do not remember the details of this story. He basically filters who's going to go to the battle um, by, I think, people who use their right hand. Um, He says, okay, all the right-handed people go over here. Okay, now all the left-handed people can go home. Now all the right-handed people, I want you to drink from the river. And, like, whoever drank directly from the river, he took with them. And whoever used their hands, he sent home. And he, like, whittled it down to, like, a very small number of people. And then they waited until nightfall. And they went to the the hills surrounding the valley, and they uh, it was it was nighttime, and then all at once they lit up torches and started yelling, and it because they were spread out evenly or unevenly or you know whatever the case may be, they looked like they had a much larger number than they actually did, and in the story the ites in the valley you know fled back to whatever you know <laughs> place Babylonian place they came from whatever. Um, this is a tactic that wasn't just didn't just appear in the Bible, of course. Uh, Genghis Khan was known for using this as well, um, lighting torches and spreading people out while it's dark and making lots of noise. Um, there was a, he would I can't remember what he did with the tails of his horses, but he would I think he tied something to them to produce more dust when they were galloping to make it look like they had more cavalry. Um, all kinds of like number increasing operations and. Um, you know, that's that's definitely a, a part of uh, The Art of War with Sun Tzu, which we will talk about in a little bit. And anybody who's got 20, 30, 40 minutes to read The Art of War should go and read it because it'll explain uh, kind of some of the principles of what we're talking about here. Of course, the obvious other obvious um, the o- other obvious psyop um, that actually appears to have worked is the <laughs> long aforementioned uh, on this podcast uh, Vlad the Impaler, uh, do you know how he got his name, George?
0: Uh, I've heard something about it. Do we have an episode on him? We
1: did a long time ago. You weren't there. Was
0: it good or did it suck?
1: I felt like it was okay. I mean, it was old. Okay. We weren't uh, as experienced as we are now. but That's probably a good thing. Yeah, but... <laughs> <laughs> no, I mean, would you care to give us a little rundown on Vlad the Impaler or I could give you the meme version if you like?
0: Uh, well, he took a bunch of Turks who had been captured in the vanguard of whatever Ottoman invasion it was, you know, they invaded like every single year when you're in that part of the world, and he impaled them all in a big field so that the rest of the Turkish forces had to basically walk through a forest of impaled
1: Turks. Right. And what (laughs) if you had to guess, would you say that might strike a little fear (laughs) to an invading army? I can imagine
0: it being mildly unsettling. Yeah,
1: and probably not everyone was dead, and, you know, there's birds picking apart the... Bu- yeah, it would probably set you back a, a little bit as far as morale goes.
0: Yeah, not in a good headspace. Not being a good headspace oh, oh. after that.
1: <laughs> headspace? <laughs> Cause- oh, wow. Okay. Well, I guess he didn't impale the heads. He impaled the people, so <laughs> that's the that's the difference. Well, and then there's another topic that I thought I'd pull you in on, because one time I was talking to you about the Crusades, and I remember you telling me about um, the events that were essentially um, leveraged to get the uh, initial Crusades going, and it was essentially pilgrims being tortured on the, their way to the Holy Land during the Crusades. Do you care to fill everyone on that as well?
0: Yeah, so what What exactly do you want me to talk about? Well,
1: specifically, I was saying, oh, I don't know why they had to go back to the Holy Land, and you're like, they were murdering people, and here's how they did it.
0: Yeah, so basically, you've got the Byzantine Empire, which is Greek and Christian in that part of the world. They've been slowly losing territory um, for, like, hundreds of years, and so now all the holy sites for Christianity, where pilgrims go, are now in the hands of non-Christians, You know, um, someone's going to get upset if I say Saracens, so I'm going to say Saracens (laughs) uh, as the catch-all term for the uh, warriors from the Islamic world who Europeans fight. Um, So yeah, Saracens, Turks, what have you, all these groups. And yeah, there's a lot lot of murdery stuff happening with pilgrims and robbery, and they're still attacking the Byzantine Empire. And so the Byzantine Emperor, who, you know, is not that far away, just over in Constantinople, asks for help from the Western European countries to retake these areas that have been taken. And remember, the population there is still mostly Christian. They are essentially a Christian population living under a conquering regime from the Islamic world. And so it's a pretty it's a, seems to me that that on itself, First Crusade, that seems like a pretty reasonable thing to try to retake some territory that had been, you know, aggressively conquered from you. And the people there are now, you know, killing people who try to visit. Like it doesn't seem unreasonable to me. Right.
1: Now there was some specific imagery that went along with it. Some specific methods of uh, execution and torture that they were using that were
0: Ooh, there were some bad yeah. ones. Let's y- there were some really bad ones. Um I recall one, I don't remember what it's called, but basically it involves making an incision um right on the side, lower abdomen and getting the end of somebody's guts and nailing it to a stake and then using burning brands to chase them around the stake so they're pulling out their own guts as they
1: run yeah pretty horrifying imagery yeah um and that imagery is of course
0: so, like, yeah, if you hear about that happening to your cousin exactly. and you're a, you know, you're a Frankish knight in Normandy or whatever, like, I could see wanting to go on the little, do a little Leo crusade, you yeah. know?
1: It kind of pisses you off a little bit, <laughs> to say the yeah, least. It's, it's,
0: it's like, oh, yeah, poor old cousin Amalric. Yep, he got his guts pulled yeah. out.
1: <laughs> poor Amalric always gets a bad rap. No, I wanted to do the Vlad the Impaler and Crusade comparison because it's it's sort of a, a, a little little comparison we can do where it cuts both ways, right? <sighs> you can use uh, gr- horrifying imagery to scare people away, and you can use horrifying imagery, not that it's, neither is obviously made up. Um, you can use this imagery to get people to go do things or to run away, and it depends on how you use it, but basically it's to wear down your enemy's morale and their psychology, and you know, their psychological health, um, their mental health. Uh, Ah, yes. Iraq has weapons of mass destruction. (laughs) Yeah, that kind of thing. (laughs) Man, you are going real loud! (laughs) Okay, that's that's just basically common knowledge at this point, so I'm not gonna even pretend. But anyway, so basically, horrifying imagery does something to people that works. And we'll get into that a little bit later. Um, But I wanted to pull in a couple of more modern examples, now that we've covered a little bit of the really, you know, historical examples. Um, there was, of course, in World War I, the threat of gas attacks, which were a new thing, very scary. Um, you know, Dan Carlin actually did a great job describing, well, he quoted somebody who described, uh, gas creeping across a field. It's basically like you're watching a specter of death come towards you and you have a choice. You either sit there and choke to death until they, at least until they got gas masks, and even then, <laughs> your chances were slim. You're just watching this green thing come towards you, and if you jump out of the trench, you get shot. Um, yep.
0: It's not great. My great-grandfather died for mustard gas.
1: Wow, I didn't know that. Hmm. Yep. Well, it's, um... The point is, these are things that, that do happen. They do kill you, and they do, they are... um, They are real, and they have actual victims and that sort of thing. Um, trench guns were another example of this, and, you know, I don't know the exact... You know, what was... Like, exactly why they were outlawed or anything like that, but the idea of getting mutilated or blown apart by a, you know, <laughs> a street sweeper at, you know, point-blank range in a trench. Pretty scary. Um, tanks were a thing that that uh, really became a thing, most, you know, largely in World War II, but in World War I they were starting to come around and they were clunky and big but they were these mechanical monstrosities and they called them cavalry for a reason. It's because they had a similar psychological effect of a cavalry charge. Uh, it was this big beast of a thing that you know, kind of unpredictable. Not fast, but you know, moving of its own accord. And you know, I mean, it, it's it's one of these things where you just really have to put yourself in the perspective of, say, like a like a British farm boy who's been put out on the out in the trenches, and you see this rolling metal box coming towards you, firing machine guns, presumably through a cloud of uh, of uh, gas, and surrounded by guys with trench guns. I, I don't know. But you see what I'm saying. It's big, it's scary, and it's new. So another thing that we got around uh World War one we had we had little hints of this, but it really got rolling in the Great Wars um, was shock programming and uh it's it's sort of like a shock troop, but for your brain, it's just something that's so awful you can't wrap your mind around it and typically, your, your sort of gut reaction to seeing something this bad is, oh, we've got to do that to them, <laughs> right? Um, so, and that's another thing. So, like, this is this is the classic, you know, here's a soldier bayonetting a baby. Like, you see this in Chinese propaganda, Japanese propaganda, all from back in the day. Uh, you see it in, you know, posters. You hear about it in news reports. You have people who say, you know, oh, they, you know, they did this horrible thing, and it's like so bad you can't believe it. And you're you're also sort of like pre-programmed to go. It's so bad no one could just make that up, right? And when I was writing this down and and uh, thinking about shock programming again, I was reminded of a of a line in uh the game Bioshock. You get this power where you can like zap people with electricity, and you get like a damage boost if you hit them with your wrench right after you zap them. And that's basically what this is. You shock somebody and then you can sort of get them to go do something or you can take them out more easily. I mean, this is launching heads over the wall kind of stuff. That's what shock programming is. It's just nasty stuff. Um, And then there's, of course, the other brand of fear programming, which is creeping fear programming. It's the it's inevitable there. It's coming and there's nothing you can do. I would point everyone to, you know, if you want to see like a good example of this in a movie. Uh Dunkirk starts with uh the main character picking up a flyer that's got all of the people on it's got a picture of a map of Europe and all of it's taken over by German forces and then there's this little tiny pocket at Dunkirk and there's all these arrows pointing to it and i I think it says something like "We're coming for you or there's no way out now um and the idea of dropping those flyers is to make the people sitting on that beach feel fear and feel lost and feel like no one's coming for them and That's kind of what the movie's all about, but that's neither here nor there. So that's Creeping Fear, and you can see that in um, a lot of, uh, like, well, if you go back and look at some old war reporting uh, from, like, the, uh, well, the the and the Vietnam era, it's like, if we don't do something now, they're gonna, it's gonna be global communism. It's coming. It's gonna be here. Right? It's just sort of like, it's in the distance, but, oh, it's coming, and you know it's coming, and you can feel it, feel it coming so it's like we should do something now and if somebody freaks out too early everyone's like ah you're just freaking out right so it's hard to point out creeping fear programming as it's coming towards you shock programming is much easier you can say oh that's just a drawing of a guy bayonetting a baby they don't actually have any photographic evidence of that happening
0: Yeah, I mean, one of the one of the big instances of that was the uh, widely publicized propaganda in World War One about the Germans crucifying a Canadian officer. It never happened, but there are sculptures of it, paintings, because some newspaper reporter either made up or got some and embellished some story. And it just sort of spread and spread and spread and spread. O- official investigations concluded it never happened. But yeah, this idea that the Germans crucified
1: a Canadian—right—that's that's some evocative imagery right there, right? And if if uh, and if you're looking at that as a civilian, you're like, sign me up! I'll buy ten more war bonds. You <laughs> Can't let that happen. Um, that's funny
0: because I literally I was doing a little reading and I literally saw a poster with this. That was for selling war bonds that mentioned the crucified Canadian, <laughs> right?
1: <laughs> um, so the last version, uh, actually, I've got two more versions. One's very simple, and the other's a little bit more complex, and it's very hard for my little brain to understand. But the last one is essentially a confidence scheme. Um, it's this. C- it's a secret victory programming. Like we've already got people on the inside. We've already won. They've already lost. And this can go both ways you can drop a leaflet into enemy territory that says you don't under, you don't realize that we have forces here 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 and here and everywhere you turn there's going to be a gun or a, you know a, a line of guns facing you there's no way out there's no way out and there's also the uh, you know the whole like we're marching to victory you know all of this um we've already won and you know america and americanism and our dynamic nature is is destined to destroy you know whatever enemies we face in the future and you know we're the most powerful military on the planet and you know all of these like secret victory like we've already won we've already won we've already won and so when that's happening to you it's very easy to essentially lose everything while believing you're winning and that's sort of like the you know 50 billion sealed indictments kind of thing you know storm is coming you know cue stuff that gets conspiracy theorists into trouble um but it's this like you don't do anything because you already believe it's over it's it's really hard to explain. And then the last thing that, that people get hit with a lot, and it's it's becoming increasingly popular these days, um, is the easy way out pro- uh, programming, which is basically like, uh, there's no reason to live. There's nothing worth doing on this planet. The enemy's already won, or we've already won, or you are here um, in the midst of all of this terror and horror. You might as well just kill yourself. I mean, you could do that. And, you know, that's dropped in with movies and and books and all sorts of romanticizations about uh, killing yourself and there's no easy way to say it if you normalize that kind of thing it's going to happen more and there's a ton of reasons for the suicide rate being globally through the roof but um, definitely the romanticization of that thing has, has some part to play or at least making it visible because it used to be that if someone committed suicide there was just a coward's way out and they were never spoken of again and now it's it's Well, it's something else. Let's just put it that way. But anyway, so these are all versions of uh, psychological operations or, you know, pranks. Uh, Hilarious pranks that governments pull on each other's people or on their own people, depending on, you know, what they need done. Um, And the thing about pranks and magic tricks is, okay, say you're at a magic show and, you know, the, the magician pulls a rabbit out of a hat and you being a big brained audience member goes, he didn't actually use magic. Well, your eyes can still trick you. You can still see this guy pull a, a rabbit out of a flat, a hat that was flattened two seconds earlier, and it looks real. As with any magic trick, even if you know the illusion, you can still see the illusion. Does that make sense? Yep, yep. Okay, so, like, you can know it's fake. You can even know how it's being faked, but it doesn't stop you from seeing the image that they're trying to present, which is a magic trick. Um, that's why, you know, I would just say cognitively knowing something is propaganda or a prank or psychological warfare, whatever you want to call it. It's not really a defense. You can know how all of these things work, um, but it's sort of like knowing that the Soviet bastard shooting at you <laughs> is a Soviet bastard won't stop his bullets from aerating your spleen. You could be like, that's a Soviet and he has a gun and he pulls the trigger and a bullet flies out, pew, pew, and then I die. And you're like, I know all of these things, so he can't shoot me. And then he just shoots you. <laughs> That's basically what it is when you understand what's going on. You you kinda can't stop it. The only thing you can do if you're... If you wanna save, you know, your country or your people or whatever you're fighting for from psychological uh, warfare or just pranks from other countries, you have to put full stop and just not let people see it. You can't let people see the pranks. Which is where censorship comes in. But let's, let's back this up a little bit and let's talk about generations of warfare um because this will this will be a little bit more historical and a little less theoretical. So uh let's let's talk about war a little bit, shall we? Um and let's actually talk about what it is because most people think uh well I okay, I say most people. How about like here's what I thought war was. I thought people got into causes and there was some injustice going on on the other side of the world and You know, when I got a little bit more into it, I was like, oh, well, there's some money. And Iraq had
0: weapons of mass destruction. Yeah, you know, I
1: get into it, you're like, there's a little money involved, you know, there's probably some political problems, you know, there's some politicians are corrupt, you know. But people, by and large, go to war and fight for for good things, right? They fight for freedom, and that's true. Most people do do that kind of thing, except for now. It used to be that way, let's put it that way. Uh it used to be that people went to war because they believed in causes and things like that. Not so much anymore. But I was looking into the etymology of uh of war and I have a note in here and I'm just gonna ask you if you know where the word war comes from.
0: Uh well let's see, it's definitely a Germanic root because right. it doesn't does not sound italic to me, so it's not a Latin root word, so yeah, it's Probably goes through West Germanic into Old Germanic and something back into Old Indo-European, but I don't I don't know the sound change laws by
1: heart enough to tell you what the Indo-European would have been. It's perfectly fine because I didn't know either. I had to I had to Google it and and look into some things to find out. Well, the word for war comes from the Proto-Germanic, uh, and I'm going to pronounce it wrong, so please forgive me. Werso, Verzo, or the old High German verran w-e-r-r-a-n do you, do you know how that might be pronounced
0: Ah, uh, yeah probably verran okay. i don't the thing is um reconstructed languages like proto-germanic pronunciation really isn't something that's even on the table because right. they're reconstructed and basically we can just say this consonant this type of vowel and this, you know, this consonant, this order, but how they're actually pronounced is something that's kind of beyond our
1: range on reconstructed languages. Okay. Well, Varen, um, whether it's pronounced that way or not, roughly translates to to confuse, to perplex, or to bring into confusion. And I did a little digging to make sure that it wasn't just that, but it's mostly just about messing people up. Perplexing them, making them stop and think and be worried and be like, where do we go from here? It's chaos. I, it's introducing chaos. That's what war, that's where the root for war comes from. So, which surprised me because I always thought, like, the, you know, the word for. Well, it didn't surprise me, I guess, because I was basically like, well, that is what war is. It's confusion, it's chaos, it's trying to sort of deal with the weapons of the enemy. Um, but it really made me think. I was like, hmm, that really fits well with the whole prank war thing is it's really just about sending noise toward people to make them wonder what are we supposed to do what are we supposed to do what what do we do now like they're they're bayoneting babies we have to do something and then somebody comes along and says well why don't you sign up (laughs) don't you want to stop them from bayoneting babies and you're like well i guess buy liberty bonds yeah exactly wear the white flower or whatever the hell they did um or pin the white flower to you So anyway, that got me thinking. I was like, okay, so we think about psychological warfare and we're like, or prank wars or whatever the hell, and we go, okay, but what could they possibly want, right? So if they're running operations on people's minds to confuse them or worry them or, you know, make them sad or whatever, it's like, what is the goal? And I thought about it, and I kind of came to, this is my theory, um, the purposes of conventional warfare appear to be loosely territory, money, and essentially slaves, right? Like early on. It was like, we want people incorporated, we want them working for us, like, that's the goal of empire, is that about right?
0: Yeah, that's the, that's the basic, basic idea, and that usually works for explaining warfare from anthropological perspectives. Not always, however. Like, I don't, how much do you know about the Aztecs? Very little. So, once they got powerful, a large part of their religion involved human sacrifices of people you captured in battle such that they actually left some of their neighbors unconquered but weak because like every few, you know every few years or whatever they'd go to war against them so that they could capture people in battle for their religion to sacrifice and so they they didn't actually want to take it over or completely destroy them because they needed to be captured in battle for it to count for their religion Exactly. And so they kept these, like, weak little neighbors so they could attack them so it counted for their religion that they captured these people in battle to sacrifice. Isn't that just perverse? That's pretty
1: bad. <laughs> well, that that actually helps out my case here because I, I concluded that it wasn't just about slaves, it was also basically about souls. And that sounds weird, but from a non-spiritual perspective, because I know that makes some people skittish. it's basically like a person's identity... Um, their their mind almost like you know you might say that neighboring group that was being harvested so to speak they weren't being harvested to be enslaved but they were being harvested for their essential human being right um they're sort of let left to grow up and then you know the grim reaper comes around and comes and gets them and then uses them for whatever their purposes are it's essentially the same thing so it's not just slaves it's souls it's people um and this, these are the purposes of, of conventional warfare. Of course, the costs of conventional warfare are typically the same. You, of course, risk losing territory. You risk spending too much money or going into horrible war debt, which is always a bad thing. And, of course, you risk your own people, your own souls or slaves or soldiers or whatever, what have you, um, to go and potentially gamble for more, right? And this is what we think of as the risks and costs of conventional warfare. And you're, you're bound to lose some things. Um, it's, wars are costly, um, but it is all about what you might get in the end. So anyway, that made me think about the purposes of prank wars, um, psychological warfare, why you might want to fool your enemy into doing things or or fool your own people into doing things. And I kind of concluded that the goals are largely the same. You want territory, you want money, you want slaves or people or souls or what have you. But there's also like another bonus uh, number of purposes for waging psychological warfare as opposed to conventional warfare. The first is that there's almost no direct conflict when you just decide you're going to bombard somebody or some group with um, propaganda or, you know, defeatist messaging or, you know, demoralization or, you know, even like like, um, you only live once kind of propaganda, like hashtags that encourage people to be sort of free and and un, unattached and rootless and, you know, that sort of thing. It, it depends on what you want them to do, but the point is if you have a communication channel that's open and clear and you know how to do that, you can convince anyone YOLO, that sort of thing. And then the other purpose is that in a psychological warfare, you're not actually doing any of the work you let the enemy do the work for you. You're doing the work of the comms, like you're sending in the propaganda, you're sending in the messaging, or even you could be... I mean, at another level, teaching people to make it for you, right? You, you 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 start a cultural trend or something like that in a place, you know, you say, Well, here at here at McDonald's, or, okay, I'll make up a company so I don't get sued. Um, here at Dinosaur Corporation, everybody walks around between their cubicles like a Tyrannosaurus Rex. And it's expected that you do so, though not required. Okay, let's even make it less silly and more... <laughs> Did you ever see the movie Office Space?
0: A long time ago.
1: Okay, so you remember the scene with Jennifer Aniston and she's, like, arguing with her boss about her flair?
0: I literally didn't even remember that she was in it, so no. Basically, if it's not a scene that has since been made into a meme or reaction image, I don't remember it.
1: Okay, (laughs) well then, I will fill you in. So she's arguing with her boss about these buttons, and the policy is that she has to have, like, 15 buttons on her apron in order to show her flair and express her individuality. And she's mad at her boss because he's mad at her and she's mad at he's mad at her because she's only put the minimum required amount of buttons on her apron. She put 15 on and then she stopped. And he's like, well, I would like to see you, you know, try harder and do more and excel and maybe put 16 buttons on your apron. And she's like, I met the minimum requirement. What's your problem? And he's like, well, I wanna see more. So that's what you might call a cultural trend is not only are you required to put the buttons on your apron, there's pressure to put more buttons on your apron and to maybe outdo the others. And there's this uh, dude who she competes with in her workplace who's this, like, happy, clappy, like, he's going along with the whole thing. He loves the flare, and his apron is just covered in buttons because he's he's the good boy who goes along with the corporate policy and gets ex- not only goes along with it, but gets excited about it. I remember people I- like this in college. Right, and so this is this is an example of a person who's been trained... To not only go along with a policy, but to like it and support it, and then encourage other people to do it. This is sometimes you need you know a spy to come in and pretend to like you know start a cultural trend. But sometimes you can just teach people something, and they'll just meme it into existence, and pretty much everyone just copies it. Um, I can't remember the exact term for that, but you might call them an influencer. It's somebody who gets a little bonus extra from, you know, some some source. You know, it might be the boss giving them a pat on the back or, you know, a gold star next to their picture on the the wall or employee of the month. You know, you might see stuff like that. But sometimes people can just really get all about something. And everybody knows someone like this. Um, You know, it's just, they're hobbyists, right? And they can be used to start trends, grow trends, get people excited, amp people up, right? That's, that's the pur- you know, that's a psychological warfare agent, essentially. And whether they know it or not, they're doing the work of some, something. So let's, uh, let's talk about tactics of psychological warfare as well. I'm not really switching topics here, um, because one of the purpose, purposes of using psychological warfare is you do get a different set of tactics. You don't have to manage, um, you know, soldiers, ammunition, supply lines, eh, kind of, you kind of do in a way. A lot of this is sort of like a one-to-one comparison, but it's not the same kind of tactics, right? You're not dealing with bombs and bigger bombs and gas. Um, The major tactics that you use in organizing psychological warfare or a good prank is the management of psychological pressure in the forms of fear, uh, relief, narrative, deception, right? All of these sort of like cloudy words, um, sort of like, you know, if you walk into a room and you shout, there's a fire on the first floor, what happens? Everybody evacuates the building, someone pulls the alarm. There may or may not be a fire, but nobody's taking that risk, right? Nobody's going to stand up and say, I'm sorry, I saw on my conspiracy website that there's no such thing as fire. <laughs> right? Nobody does that because that's a, that's a risk because most people believe that there's such a thing as fire and trust the employee who yelled it in the office. <laughs> Sheep. Sheep. <laughs> to know (laughs) sheeple (laughs) you still believe in fire (laughs) wake up (laughs) get yeah anyway so it's it's really in in this uh in the mind war it's about pressure You know, pressuring people to do something because it's socially popular, pressuring people to not do something because it's unpopular. The black screen in your pocket said that everyone thinks something, so, well, I guess, you know, that's what everyone thinks now. I guess this is what America's all about now, so let's go! You know what I'm saying. Um, And then another thing that, say, a foreign adversary might do to, you know, a, uh, a population is they might teach the enemy to surrender before they even have to fight them. Um... Which is to say, like, popularizing, you know, an attitude of defeat, an attitude of failure, um, making it so hard for people to say, putting putting the right pressure on a country or a nation or a group or whatever. I'm being way too vague, but putting pressure on your victim uh, to essentially feel like there's no hope and to give up, and then you can just sort of walk in and take his things. Um... It's, uh, I mean, the best, (laughs) let's, let's talk a little bit about Saving Private Ryan. When was the last time you watched that movie?
0: Uh, probably when I was, uh, like 10.
1: Right. Okay. So do you remember the scene? Do you remember the scene with the knife fight? Yes. That's I was going to
0: say. I remember two scenes, the knife fight and the initial attack on the beach.
1: Okay. So the initial (laughs) attack on the beach, that's, that's pretty serious, but the knife fight. Oh my God. Well, if you haven't seen that movie, there's a character in there who's kind of weak and a little bit passive and he witnesses this knife fight um and sees one of his friends get killed by, you know, big bad German who knows about Betty Boop or something like that. And he can't help his friend because he's too scared. Um he's got, you know, a gun and he's it's like pointed right at the German. And he can't pull the trigger. He's too scared. He's like weeping in the corner. Um and eventually the German just kills the guys friend and then the German sort of like looks at him like why didn't you do any- anything and walks out and the guy just feels this crushing defeat because he's already he can't pull the trigger or do anything because he's just too scared to do so um, he's been sort of demoralized or frightened or you know what have you His the psychological pressure is too high for him to do anything um, he's just paralyzed and that's what fear essentially does to you it immobilizes you whether that's mentally by confusing you or you know Emotionally by scaring you, that sort of thing. Another bonus tactic to psychological warfare is you also have plausible deniability. In the case of the <laughs> the knife fight, there's really no denying that that guy just stabbed your friend to death. <laughs> but in psychological warfare, you know, if I come along and say, the media's all lying to you, you shouldn't li- believe it or listen to it. There's a lot of people who are like, come on. <laughs> like, what do they have to gain? <laughs> why would they lie? And so it ultimately becomes you know, I just sound like a crazy person saying don't watch the TV and don't subscribe to Disney Plus uh, because well, there's plausible deniability there. And here's the last bonus tactic of Psychological Warfare that I could think of in my short list and I didn't want to go on forever. Um, It pretty much always works if your operation is clever enough. So if you put in enough like backstops enough um, red herrings and enough like Essentially, false leads for people to follow. If they start asking too many questions, you pretty much will have just a bunch of people who either go with it or drive themselves insane. If you're, if you make it a complex enough, um, a complex enough plan. So, anyway, <clears throat> as for comparing the costs of psychological warfare to the costs of conventional warfare. Psychological warfare is most effective when it's slow. Sometimes it's planned many years in advance, and sometimes it grows on its own. Um, When you plant the seed of an idea in someone's head, say that they're unhappy, and you don't tell them why until a little later, you let them sit in that unhappiness for a while, and then when everybody's good and sad or good and angry, you come along and say, you know how you've been feeling bad about this the whole time? Well, it was these guys the whole time. And you're so ready to just jump on anything that looks like the cause of your suffering that you typically will just break and go for it. Right? Um, I don't know if you can think of any examples of that sort of thing, but I'm leaving it open here because I feel like I'm just rambling.
0: Um, nothing immediately springs to mind, but, I mean, conceptually it makes sense. Right.
1: Well, you know, it's, it's sort of like, um... Uh, eh, well, it's so hard to talk about these because essentially what you have is with um, psychological pressure is that people get attached to the thing that rescued them. So say you were, you know, spinning out of control and you you were just addicted to something and you had a bad life and your family didn't talk to you. And then you found, say, this really, really specific, you know, sect of Mormonism. And there was this really cool Mormon guy in there who said let me fix it. And he said, you have to do this, 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 and this, and you'll be all, all set. And you struggle and you struggle and you struggle and you finally get to it and you finally feel happy again. You're talking to your family. You're not addicted anymore. You've got things going. You know, you're, you're on the right track back. If somebody comes along and says, don't you know that that guy's a huckster? Don't you know that he's a, he's a liar? Well, you've just advanced, you're just like put all of this trust in this person, and it seems to have worked, and you know in your exper- your experience it actually did work, and you did pull yourself out of a hole, and then somebody's coming along s- telling you that that person's fake, it's going to be really, really hard to convince you of that. right?
0: Yeah, no my my re- my reaction would be, well well, screw you, man.
1: <laughs> yeah, exactly. this guy got me out of it. I don't care if he you know took all my money or whatever. he got me out of it, right And then you know. If he ends up being a scammer, you feel kind of silly and you wonder about the whole thing and you have an existential crisis, but if you stick to it, at least you don't have to deal with an existential crisis, you know what I mean? So, <clears throat> another, another note I have in here is essentially, when a country goes to war, they typically accumulate lots of debt because it's expensive, um, and in the, the realm of, of uh, media operations and psychological warfare, you basically have a bank of credibility. So the boy who cried wolf, every time he cried wolf and there was no wolf, he was withdrawing from that bank of credibility. And eventually when he went to withdraw a little bit of credibility from that bank, he found that his bank account was in default, right? He didn't have any money left in it. So he got eaten by the wolf. And that's what you get with uh, big media companies and that sort of thing. They've been they've been like pulling their, you know, money out of the bank of credibility for a long time. They've been withdrawing without building it up, without putting anything in there to make themselves look more credible. Which is why trust in mainstream media is at an all time low. And that's they- a-
0: that's also why there's so much uh, sort of trend towards monopolization because if you can buy up and take control of other outlets, they can sort of prop you up by lending you credibility, because if you now control this other, you know, media institution, which will act like you're credible, mm-hmm. for a while, that that works, because it's like, oh, look, you know, they're trusted by you know, other groups. And so you sort of get yes. this centralization as power keeps centralizing information power because you need to keep sort of bolstering up that credibility. It's basically like creating shell corporations to hide your yep. finances. You,
1: you get it. You get it because it's, it's that's why I call these scams. They're, they're basically multi-level marketing schemes. That's what the bank of credibility is. And it's just crazy how much it lines up with finance, but I really don't want to get into that because I don't like talking about money anyway <clears throat> there are some other risks of psychological warfare one it might as well destroy the spoils like it might actually destroy the thing you're going after so an example of destroying the spoils is like okay say you wanted to take a region of france because it had. that's a lot oddly of good, specific um i'm just saying i'm still in the world war one mindset okay so you're like we're gonna take over that area of france because not not that this was what world war one is about but you know what i'm getting at Because they have, you know, ample supplies of delicious wine and cheese. And we're going to take over that area by blowing it up and killing everyone there. And then we can come in and take all the wine and cheese.
0: I feel like you're attacking me for my methods in Company of Heroes.
1: (laughs) No, it works. That's why I'm I'm actually supporting you. But here's the problem. There's no wine and cheese in Company of Heroes. (laughs) I'm sure there's a mod. If you shell the French countryside to get the wine and cheese or, you know, whatever natural resources are there, and you do it so hard, eventually there's nothing there at all, and you've just created, you know, the wasteland that was a lot of battlefields in World War I. However, that sometimes may be the point. You know, scorched earth theory and all that. You may just want to blow it up so that nobody can get it. You know, if I can't get it, then nobody can get it. Salt the earth! That sort of thing. The other cost of psychological ah, warfare- yes,
0: me and Tarkov as I'm emptying my duffel bag of cigarettes and matches and stuff when I'm cornered and know I'm going to die. If <laughs> <laughs> I can't have this toilet paper, no one can, as I throw uh, it into the river while I'm bleeding out.
1: <laughs> I'm sorry, toilet paper is so 2020. Leave it behind. <laughs> so the other risk of psychological warfare, which is maybe the most hilarious part of it, um, is that it might work so well it gets to you too. Um, and a one-to-one comparison of this would be the gas blowing back over your own lines, um, which was a thing that happened before they did gas shells. They would just open canisters when the wind was blowing toward the enemy, and the wind would blow the gas over the enemy lines, and you just had to hope that the wind didn't shift. Well, sometimes it did, and, (laughs) well, you played yourself. (laughs) Um, programming and media and that sort of thing, teaching a, a certain group of people, to believe something about themselves or about their country that's inherently harmful to them can also spread to your people and i, I kept trying to think of examples of this um, where it's sort of it's basically like okay so i'm having fun i'm going to parties and you know doing cocaine and like getting with hookers and stuff and like that's so fun i'm so free and you know, you become a parent one day and you're like, look at your kid and you're like, do I want them to do that? And most normal people are like, no, <laughs> I hope that never gets to them. But by then the culture has already been created and you were a part of it and you have a history and your kid's going to be looking at you and going, well, if my dad did it, it can't be that bad. And you run a higher risk of, you know, your kid getting into some trouble, that sort of thing. So that's another another cost of psychological warfare or prank wars. So you got to be careful about that prank channel on YouTube. You want to start with your girlfriend. Um, and then the, the last thing is, and I have a historical example here, um, is that it's a gamble. Um, just like any battle or, or war in history, it's, it's all about, you know, essentially taking the chance. Are you going to get more, or are you going to walk away with less than you had when you went in? Um, and there's a, there's a story, I'm sure you've heard this, about throwing good food over the walls of a siege. You ever hear about this with the Lydians?
0: yeah yes, you're bring, bringing up one of the seven sages of Greece, I believe. You can probably
1: tell the story better than me
0: i mean it's it's I'm pretty sure it's it's a very, very short uh little little anecdote. There's not a right. whole it's because you know it takes place in sort of the it's, it doesn't have you know like
1: eyewitness direct historical attestation. It's an anecdote that's told in later authors so yes, and to, it's also um, mimicked in other legends uh, as well that's it's It's a common story. Um, So it may or may not have happened, but the oldest, one of the older accounts I can find of this is when during a siege, um, Bias of Priene defeated the Lydians um, by throwing all the good food, almost all the good food over the wall um, to sort of convince the attackers that we've got so much food, we can just throw it away. And when they had like, um, you know, talks with the enemy and somebody came inside, they would like pile up. This guy from the enemy would see piles of corn and grain and all of this stuff, and he'd be like, Wow, they got a ton of food. Like, we're gonna have to hold this siege for a lot longer. Um, And then, you know, it turns out that the piles of food were actually piles of sand covered in food, right? So they had a lot less than it looked like they had. It was just a basic illusion, basic trick. And Biasupraeen also fattened up a good pair of mules one day and drove them out of the city. And basically we were like, oh, well, we, we lost two mules. I guess they're yours now. We've got like 10 million more where those came from. Um, but in these stories, the siege always breaks. But if somebody didn't buy it, you just threw away all your good food, right? So if they decided to hold out and, and still cons- continue besieging your city... You're now out of food, and you look kind of silly. <laughs> so, um, <laughs> right. Thank you for that text, George. Um, so, all of these stories um, are these are fun and all, and it's it's fun to talk about this stuff, of course. Um, but this is this is where things are gonna maybe get a little bit more controversial because we're gonna talk about psychological warfare in the 20th century. When it went from, like, mere trickery and cleverness to, like, full-scale Decepticon warfare. <laughs> That's what I really should is call Is this where we people. talk
0: about the CIA?
1: Uh, we might mention the CIA uh, a little bit, but they're definitely part of this, uh, this thing. But the CIA, Hollywood, the media, like, anybody who's sending out messaging is basically doing psychological warfare. There's no way around it. Um, you don't really have an option but to help people, or not help people, to change people's minds by saying something. So when uh, the big bad guys, whoever they are, figured it out, they essentially decided to weaponize it, and like, how can we make this work toward our own ends and just manipulate public consciousness or even public trends to work towards some goal that we would like to see? And, you know, you can get mad at bankers for, you know, oh, they invented you know, a war to get to sell more steel and, you know, you can also get mad at, like, religious people who said, oh, well, you know, it's, it's it's holy to go to war and you gotta go fight the bad guys and save, you know, your your god's kingdom or, you know, stuff like that. Not saying it's good or bad, I'm just telling you how it works. Um, because you really have no choice, but, I mean, that's the whole point of anything, is of, of any kind of power is to control people and make them do what you want, right? And it used to be that you could just sort of like, you know, do it by force. But why use force when you can just make them do it to themselves? So (laughs) let's talk about a, uh, (laughs) I don't know exactly how I'm going to transition this, but um, say you wanted to start a lemonade stand. Okay. Have you ever, have you ever done a lemonade stand?
0: I have not. I did, however, have a baked goods stand at a farmer's market.
1: Very good. So, what do you need to start a baked goods stand at the farmer's market?
0: Well, it helps if you're, like, 14-year-old and just a cute little chubby kid.
1: <laughs> that's true. Then all the old ladies come to buy things. Aw, that's so sweet. We're going to talk about war again. <laughs> so, let's say you did. You were a, chute, uh, a, chute, a cute chubby kid and you wanted to start a baked goods stand at your farmer's market. Essentially, what you need a few things, right? You kind of need a little space at the farmer's market. You need a little money to buy the ingredients to make the baked goods. And you need people to buy and sell your baked goods, right? You kind of you need all of those things to get your stand going. And we could call that, say, a, a corporate entity. Like whether that's a, a stand or, or a, you know, a full-scale business or a big corporation. You, know, you kind of need those essential things to get it up and running, right? You need a place, you need some money, and you need customers and somebody to occupy the stand right so here's the lesson <laughs> of the uh, the propaganda wars of the 20th century is you can actually you actually don't need territory or even a lot of money um, to do things if you can simply capture people's hearts and minds so this is and this is uh, <laughs> hang on actually I need to take a break can we pause this for just? so yes when you're running a physical stand, you're selling a physical good and you're selling, you know, you're, you have to have, almost, you know, physical customers to walk up and hand you their pocket change to buy your little muffin. Um, that's what you would call, like, a brick-and-mortar corporate entity of some kind, right? And the, uh, the, the trade-off is obvious. You get the money, they get the big good, everybody's happy, right? Now, in psychological operations and you know sales and that sort of thing sometimes you're selling like nowadays it's like a lot of digital stuff like you're selling ad space you're selling a website you're selling a service um things that are done and don't really produce anything physical lots of things are digital and digital stuff is a lot like ideas in your your mind right so if i wanted to sell you an idea the trick and this is the movie inception's perfect for this i'm going to keep talking about movies first time in a while i've talked about movies When I say don't think about elephants, what do you think about? Elephants. Right. If I say don't think about, don't think about, whatever, it's going to bring up things in your mind. And until you shut me up (laughs) or you stop listening to me, I can make you, I can just say things that are going to make you... We've crossed
0: that bridge a long time ago.
1: Right. (laughs) You haven't been listening this whole time. (laughs) This is proof. Um, So if I say, have you noticed that there's a lot of really rich people and you're really poor... You go, yeah, that's true. <laughs> There's people out there like Jeff Bezos, who's got all this money, and Bill Gates—accursed be his name—he's um, got all this money, and I don't have any money. And you say, well, think about that for a while, and then you think about it for a while, and then there, people who are thinking about it, try to come up with solutions to the problem, and they develop their own little isms, right? They've got like communism, monarch monarchism, Americanism, Republicanism you know all of these isms um to address the problem that most people long after you've planted the seed have come to accept as simply being true there's yeah there's uh you you're preparing solutions to the problem that you invented in their head i mean even if it's a real problem now people are thinking about it so in in this realm basically what you have to do is direct people's attention toward a problem and just keep their attention focused on that problem and just keep it there that's all you have to do and that's all the media has to do to get you to think and be discontented and mad and the more they make you think about it the angrier you get and then when all the ready made solutions come along they have a little they have little scuffles between the solutions until one you know allegedly organically arises to the top and that's the one everyone goes with and that solves the problem But in order to get attention on something, you have to have a loud microphone, loud megaphone, or, you know, sufficient uh, influence outside of mere volume, say reason or what have you, to get people to put their attention on one problem. There's one great book that I recommend that was recommended to me by George um, a couple years ago called Ideas Have Consequences. God, I think it was more
0: than a couple years ago at this point.
1: It was three, three years ago? Maybe.
0: I think it was more, honestly.
1: Oh well. Well, four. Let's say four to be safe. <laughs> Ideas have consequences. It's Richard Weaver is there right? in? Yep, that's him. Yeah, Richard Weaver. Been working my way through that one. That's a that's a tough read. That's a tough read because one, it's it's right. <laughs> and it's uh it's kinda dark because it really does give you a full grasp about where things are kinda going with the way things are and at least in western countries, which was the context in which it was written. Wasn't he just like some guy from North Carolina who wrote it? I don't remember.
0: Uh, he was a professor. I think, I think he was like a just a low-ranking professor at the University of Chicago. Um, he might have been from North Carolina. Yeah, look at that. He was. You were right. I just looked it up.
1: Yeah, so... I didn't, I didn't
0: remember that.
1: <laughs> <laughs> I've been working my way through it again. I can only listen to it in pieces because he's so right, it hurts. Um, basically the main premise of the book is that if you have an if you can, if you accept an idea, um, say that there's something wrong with how money works in this world, or say there's wealth disparity, or, you know, you can name any number of issues, and I, I won't sit here just listing problems. But if you can get, if you focus on one idea for a long enough time, it gradually develops into something greater whether that's more evil darker or better or brighter the point is a lot of root ideas like say there's something wrong with this room right there's something wrong with my bedroom it's too small right but or it's too big or whatever the point is if i can say you know there's something wrong with this room and you say well what is it i said i don't know it's just there's something about it well most people are going to go well what is it is it the walls and you say maybe was it the bed? Is it too small? Well, maybe that's it. And then you never really give an answer. Well, eventually they'll come. They'll they'll keep thinking about it. It'll bother them forever until they're like, "I know what it was. It was the ceiling." And they're like, yup, that's it." And they let you think you came up with it, right? Very manipulative, very uh, very Joker-esque uh, kind of stuff. But anyway, so if you wanna if you wanna have a good dark look into uh, how an idea can get planted and develop into some much larger creature like the thing in Stranger Things. Um, there you go. But anyway, so the other thing that I wanted to cover uh, is w- the the kind of war that we've sort of seen in earnest since the since the uh, the American style of doing warfare. Um, <laughs> wait, what? Are you put you're putting something in the document. What are you putting in there? Oh, I just highlighted something you wrote and asked if we were going to do that. Oh, shit. You're right. Thank you. Let me mark this. Speaking of ideas having consequences, could you break down the word idea for us, George?
0: Ah, there you go. I'm glad you did what I could do. So, um, it comes from the Greek, as so many terrible things in life do. Um, the Greek word wideo, which means I see, um, fun fact, it's a almost all the Indo-European words have an, uh, an id sound in their word for seen, hence in Latin, video, I see, where we get, you know, video. In Greek, video, and so um, that id is the root that you get ados from, which is a thing that is seen, and eventually you get sort of the abstract noun, idia, which is a basically a thing that you have seen, and it be- mm. takes on an abstract sense of some sort of truth or you know, proposition
1: that you have grasped. Or a pattern, sort of, a pattern. You see it, to- see it in your mind's eye. Could that be a way of putting it? Yeah. Yeah, so an idea is it- Yeah, so you can see something physically like a, like a stand, right? You can see your bake stand or whatever. Um, and you can also imagine it, right? And you can use your imagination to see things in, in your mind. Now, if I come to you and I say, again, there's something wrong with this room. I've just given you an idea and it's it's open-ended it's what is wrong with the room you're looking around you're like i want to see what you see and if i don't tell you what it is for a while you're going to come up with all kinds of answers and when i come in and i say it was this all along all of your other ideas fade away and you focus on that one right it's it's really it's it's very very high-minded psychological stuff. hurts my brain to even think about this. But let's talk about the different kinds of war that we've experienced uh, in history and the one we're kind of experiencing now. Um, you've got a territory war, which is all about ground. You want stuff. You want things. You want the people occupying the stuff to work for you. You want... You want the Alsace-Lorraine back. That's right. <laughs> you want all of that back. And then there's so-called trade wars in which you're trying to get capital ground. You're trying to get, you know... um you're trying to you're trying to get influence with certain people to get paid more to pay less to your competitors. You're trying to get, uh, essentially like, um, income sources from different companies. If you're a mega corporation, you're trying to get money from here, 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 and you're even sometimes trying to pit your little groups against each other so that they out compete and you can sort of make a little money off the top on that. You know, you know what I'm saying? You know what I'm saying? If you're a if you're a big corporation, um, and it's all about money. So we've got ground capital control. And then there's another kind of war, which, again, it gets memed into being a joke, um, which is why I don't like saying it, but it's mind war. And I hate saying it because you've got a lot of clowns, and before you think I'm talking about Alex Jones, George, just simmer down. <laughs> you got a lot of clowns who, who say things like, it's all about your mind, it's in your mind, it's in your head, and they they just, they're like, they om- almost can't explain what exactly that means, because most people don't know the value of mind, right? Um, people don't know the value of hearts and minds in a conflict. Most people think, well, they did this for money. Well, they did this to get the Alsace-Lorraine, right? They <laughs> they did this because they wanted to take over the world. They wanted to have you know a McDonald's in every country. They wanted to you know burn, get rid of all the borders so that everything's one monolithic country and then one person controls it. Like these are things we can conceptualize. But most people have a really, really hard time. And even I have a, like, not even I, but I have a hard time really expressing how important it is, essentially, in a war to have the hearts and minds of a people. Because the mind. Okay, so, okay, say, that, say there were no people on the planet Earth. You would still have gold, oil, you would still have land, you still have all these resources. But if with no people, what is the point? So. That's why I say souls and slaves are one of the major things that, are, that wars are fought over. And nowadays, that's kind of what people are fighting for right now, is people. People's minds, their attention. Um, if you can get attention on something, you can get virtually anything you want. And that's basically how it works. Um, and here's the other thing is, if you can capture the minds of a people, if you can capture the minds of a group, say, that has something that you want, and you can train them that it's, say, moral to give you something that they have that you want. They'll do it, and you won't even have to convince them they're, to do it. They'll just be happy to do it. And, you know, a classic example of this is, like, you know, the the scam, the scam like, uh, Nigerian prince emails, right? People think they're doing a good thing by sending a little capital, you know, toward that guy who needs the help in Nigeria. Um, and you're just taking their money, and you're like glad you feel good about helping me, but I got your money now. And they gave it to you by choice. And some people, there's probably not that many people out there, but some people will go to their grave thinking they did a good thing and they just got scammed, right? So <clears throat> that brings us into um, essentially white war And we talked about this on the propaganda episode a long time ago. I was still in Austin. We talked about white, gray, and black propaganda. Well, there's white, gray, and black psychological warfare and there's white gray and black prank wars so in a white psy war you want to make things great um you you know a good picture of this would be like an idealist who comes out and says we've had enough of them and they're terrible and not us though we've got we're gonna make things amazing like It's we're going to have all the factories churning out products and we're going to have, you know, infrastructure. We're going to fix all the potholes on your street and you're no longer going to have to work three jobs at three different fast food restaurants at all hours of the night in order to make ends meet. You say, and we're going to do it and we're going to do it now. And a lot of people, if they're suffering, will go, I want to hear what this guy has to say. And if he says the right things, if it's say it's an authoritarian, we'll just use that as an example. If he says the right things, he doesn't have to force people to give him money. They'll give him money. They'll give him their attention. They'll give him the, their mind. That's the resource that you get in a white war. And in a white war, the assumption also is that that authoritarian or that person or that, you know, person, that thing that's standing up against all this horror is actually the good thing. They actually are going to help you, right? It's not a, it's not a false lead. It's a good thing, right? This person wants to help you. In our scam world of today, this rarely happens. But if you can prove yourself to be genuinely good, if you can prove that you have a good plan and you can convince enough people to follow you, people will let you sleep on their couch or downright move in with them if they like you enough. The best resource that you can have isn't money, it's influence. It's do you have friends? Do you have people who listen to you? You can borrow money, you can borrow territory. All you have to do is get command of the people. And hopefully, when somebody, you know, if somebody ever does that again, which I doubt as a cynic, <laughs> um, hopefully somebody like that or something like that could, could actually do something and not scam people in the end, which I, I have yet to see that ever happening. And then there's, of course, gray cyborg, um, where you annoy people. <laughs> <laughs> you just you just like keep knocking on their door right you're like i know you rejected this sale but i'm just gonna keep knock 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 i want to sell you some real estate you know you ever see glengarry Glen ross no it's a movie about salesmen it's play too but the movie's better <laughs> depending on who does the play aha um basically that movie's about are you going to keep knocking on the door making the calls even if to people who are frustrated with you to see if they'll reward your persistence or will you just give up? Well, in a gray psychological war, basically you annoy people and because who want to be left alone until they give you what you want just so you'll leave them alone. Right? So you just want to annoy people to the point that they want to shut you up for a little bit. And then you go back to doing it again. You know, they think they got rid of you, they get rid of you for a couple of months and then you show back up and you say, hey, you remember that deal? I got another one. And then they're like, ugh... I know the only thing that stops this guy is to give him my money to buy some land or to keep him leading along and eventually he's going to ask for a sale and, you know, I don't know how to say no. You know, can't get rid of him. That's what Grey Psychological Warfare is and it's it's basically, you know, agitation propaganda or AGITPROP in all caps as they call it in the biz. It's to keep you just pissed off enough that you just say whatever you want I'll make my profile picture on Facebook, you know, a French flag or whatever the hell they did years ago. I'll do this, just don't bother me, right? You don't really care, but you kind of care because they're making you care, right? That's kind of what the vote thing was. Not to get unpopular, but they just, they just, this is just like, get out and vote. It's like, who, who for? And they're like, we don't care, just just vote. you're like, why though? Why do you care? (laughs) Like you're not going for a candidate? They're like, I don't care, it's going to be in every ad and every website, and it's not going to be on every street corner, we just want you to vote. Which is weird, but that's an example of, you know, grey psychological warfare. It's just like, they're going to bother you until you do it, right? And I'm not saying there's anything nefarious there, I'm just saying, that's an example. Now, a black Psywar, and it's considered a BLACK OP in all, all caps, they're very scary, very cool people, um... In a Black Star War, you basically, it's pretty much what you think. You oppress people to the point of complete subjugation and surrender. Um, You have to really just hit them all day long with like, you're bad, you're bad, you're bad, and the only thing you can do to absolve yourself of this sin that I invented is to do the thing that I tell you to do. It's a very abusive thing for for any corporation or government to do. Um, But if people need you, you can do it to them all day long. Um, and it it works best. I wrote it only works, but it it actually only works. It actually works best if they think you're on their side. So if you say this is a, this is you know I, okay, I'll just use the the classic preacher example. I'm a sinner too. I've done this terrible thing, and I know nobody wants to say it, but I have. Um, you know, and you know you've done it too, and you if you have the courage, you'll stand up right now and admit you did it. And you know I can I can remember back in back in the old uh Christian summer camp days they did this with porn. They would have some guy go up front and say, "I I know you all don't want to admit it, but I will. I watched the nasty pornos when I was, you know, 12 or whatever and you all do it too cuz you have phones in your pockets." And they say, "Now stand up if you want to absolve yourself of this of this sin." And you know, you do <laughs> cuz you're like if I'm sitting, everyone's going to th- like, it's really awkward, but that's kind of what it is. They, they think you're doing good by making you... It's all kinds of screwed up. Did, are you following that? Did I make that clear enough?
0: I'm following. I didn't, you know, I didn't go to Protestant summer camps, so...
1: yeah. Well, Don't. it was weird. I'm not saying it was even necessarily a terrible thing. I'm just saying that's what it was. It was like, now stand up and say you support it. Right? They, they like, wait for you to do it. Like, are you gonna stand up? Are you gonna stand up? Do it do it. And then they just get in your face until you do it. And you're like, well, I know they're right. So they're like, you're, you're darn right. I'm right. And you're like, yeah, well, you know, I don't know if I agree with it. And they, are no, no, you know, I'm right. So you better stand up. And that's psychological pressure of social shame. So <clears throat> let's skip on down here a little bit because there's a couple more things I want to get to. and I know this is getting, a, this is getting to time. So <clears throat> I'm sure everybody here has heard of heard the phrase "the news is all propaganda." Anyway, um, <laughs> uh, it's all propaganda. You know, it's, don't watch it. It's just it's just propaganda. And, uh, nobody watches CNN anymore. Uh, my question a couple of years ago was, when did it become acceptable that like we just take for granted that the news is propaganda and without actually knowing what propaganda is? It's it's very interesting. Um, but this is I want to talk about the uh, the way this. Some of the techniques that uh, the news and the media use um, to sort of keep you on the chain, so to speak. Um, number one is interference, and this is just like you might imagine, like a jamming signal on like a radio. Say so you're you're scrubbing between stations on AM, looking for Rush Limbaugh before he delivers his final address, um, and you're just hearing all this noise in between stations. And it's this is what's called interference. It's just extra signals that are too weak to, you know, give you a give you any kind of communication, but it's still radio noise that's being picked up by your receiver, and it's all getting scrambled together, right? And it's noise between stations. And every now and then you find something that sounds true, but if you drive far enough, you no longer get any signal. So interference in the media can be disinformation, which is false narratives. It can be false numbers about things. It can be um, a made-up story completely. It can be a twisted story. It can be a true story that's misrepresented. Like, that's disinformation. Misinformation is, like, information that's not complete. um, Or it's information that's um, not quite geared toward an end, but it's... or I'm sorry, that is geared toward an end that's not true. There's also the carpet bombing of information, which is just, like, way too much information. Which is, which is what can happen, especially if you're addicted to the news, which I'm, or not just the news, but you know, social media and all that stuff. It's just as you scroll through things, it's topic, 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 different, 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 different kinds of pressure, different kinds of noise, different kinds of signal, all of this crazy stuff coming at you, and there's no way you can like filter all of it. And a lot of people I know try to be like, I'm objective about the news, so like I listen to both the left and the right side, and I'm like, all you're doing is increasing your interference level within your within your you know what you're trying to learn about the world. The other thing is uh drum fire. You know what drum fire is, of course. I I don't. You don't? No. I can't believe I'm about to educate you on something. This is cool. Uh well actually it's it's terrible. So in World War 1 there were scenes um where the artillery fire was so heavy that there were no gaps in between explosions. And so essentially it sounded like rolling drums, like rolling snare drums, but except like a million times louder. And drum fire essentially wasn't directed at any physical target. Um, it was directed at a, an area with people in it. And it maybe didn't kill a ton of people, but it definitely destroyed morale. This is where you get those crazy eyes and all those photos. I mean, there are a lot of reasons to go crazy in World War One. don't get me wrong. But Drumfire, you know, had people, like, tearing off their clothes and running out into the open naked screaming. Like, that kind of... that kind of horror. And Drumfire could go on for weeks at a time. And there's pictures of the piles of art- spent artillery shells from these barrages, and they're like mountains of canister... or shells. Um, and they didn't actually do much damage except to the minds of the, of the enemy. So drum fire in the, in the case of like a media op or something like a psycho- psychological op or even just a really, really dumb prank is to just keep doing it, right? So you see the, like a compilation of, of that guy walking, like a guy walking through, um, what's that saran wrap that's put across a doorway and he doesn't see it and he just keeps seeing it and every time he runs into it, he gets more and more frustrated That's what the media's been doing to you probably your whole life. It's just, think about this, think about this, think about this, think about this, think about this. And if you don't think about it you go, wait a second, they go, why aren't you thinking about that? You're like, well, I guess I'll start thinking about it again. And you're just the idiot who keeps running into the saran wrap over and over and over. And the more frustrated you get, you know, are you going to keep walking through it? Or are you going to just throw out the saran wrap? (laughs) You know what I mean? (laughs) So anyway. Um, drum fire in media is just, they, it's like bright red headlines, it just hits you again and again, um, it's, you can't think about anything other than this or you're bad. That sort of thing, right? You have to think about the economic situation right now all day long, and if you don't, you're bad. That kind of thing. It's really, really pathetic, but it works really well on people who don't know what's happening to them. Um, then the third thing is, we did talk about, we did talk a little bit about the shill when we talked about, um... What uh, the guy in uh, Office Space with all the flair on his apron? He's totally a shill. He's like, "Yes, this is great. This is what we're all about. I'm totally down for this." Like, why aren't you putting more flair on you? Um, now, shills, everyone. Oh, he's a paid shill. Not always. A lot of people are shills just because they really are the true believers, right? These are these are the people who, you know, the sort. For example, the women who believe that the war needed to be fought so hard, like they needed protection, that they would go around and put the white flowers on the, the guys who dodged the draft or didn't go or had a religious exemption or something like that. That's an example of a shill who doesn't know they're a shill. Um, these are, I call these the battle droids of war because they basically connect to a larger message and that's what drives them. So when you run into people who are essentially just all about one thing and if you try to change their message they get mad at you, that's a that's an un, unbeknownst shill. That's somebody who doesn't know they're doing it. Um, It's sort of like uh, you you can get people to advocate for your thing. But let's 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 get even let's go back to the church thing, because I I just I know that's going to hit with a lot of people. So this is the guy, you know, the people who line up on the stage with the healer. You ever see these these Protestants on TV who are like, and I cast out this demon that's in you. And the people like act all shocked and they fall back and people catch them and they're like, I'm healed. Right. Talking, I've,
0: I've seen it. I've seen you, it.
1: Have you seen some memes about it, too? I'm sure you have. I've, I've definitely seen some memes.: Yeah, so there's a lot of people out there in that audience who don't know that this is a game. They don't know that it's a show, and they actually do get up on the stage and they have something invisible in them that's hurting them, some kind of pain. And here this is going to be the really this is going to be really hard to accept for a lot of people. Um, but let's just run an example. Um, so somebody goes up on that stage. They've got, you know, a little pain in their stomach and they're worried about it. And the pastor goes, you are healed! Chances are, 50-50, that that person will actually feel relief in their stomach within a few minutes. Because they don't believe it's there anymore. As long as they believe that they've been healed, they'll stop feeling that pain for a little while. And this is another movie in The Matrix. If you die in The Matrix, you die in real life. Well, if you believe... That something is going away. Turns out that it tends to like go away, at least for a little while. Have you ever heard of anything like this before? I mean, well, the, pl- the placebo effect is very yeah. recognized and well-attested. Exactly, exactly. Thank you for giving it a name so I don't just sound like I'm crazy. Um, so yeah, you've got all of that. And then uh, that, that's, that's a person who goes on to advocate for your, your program because they really did feel some kind of benefit about it, even if it was a scam.
0: Yeah, no, like, I've, it's like, you know, there's certain, certain things that, uh, are not scientifically attested. Not that that means crap, I don't believe in science, but, um, (laughs) but, like, that people do and feel better. Like, I know people who go and, like, get one of those sort of chiropractic things where they, like, poke a certain spot in your foot and you know, like their walking problem gets better for several weeks. Like I've Mm seen, I've seen it happen. Like, and science says there, well, there's no connection between those two things. It didn't do anything, but like, you know, whatever, whatever it is that the chiropractor does seems to actually, these people do have relief for whatever problem, you know, problem they were suffering from. I've seen that multiple times with people.
1: Yep. Well, that's, and that's the part where we don't want to accept it, but, and this is the part that's really going to be hard for a lot of people to accept. Um, you're, I don't know if I should say this so directly but basically most people don't understand just how much their mind controls the kind of life they live and not in the sense of like I'm sad I'm going to you know, do this drug like if you think you're going to be sad that day the odds of you being sad that day are way higher but if you get out of, mor- out of bed in the morning and you believe that this is going to be a good day the odds of you having a better day go through the roof Ah, uh, and- yes. The power of yes. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Far Cry 5 was right! Now, um, Oh, you didn't need to tell me that. Okay, so this <laughs> this is where, like, lots of, lots of people who look into this get, like, into the hippy-dippy territory, which is fine. I mean, I get it. It's okay. Is it, though? I mean, okay, maybe it's not to you, but you know what I mean. It's easy to be like, oh, well, <laughs> I guess I can sort of, like, conjure something with my mind by thinking about it a lot, and believing that I'll be wealthy someday. Well, that's where we have to have a a further podcast on the power of belief, because this is all about influence. If you can really get people to believe something, you can make people do the craziest, darkest, best, most wonderful, biggest things you can imagine, if you can just get them to really chase it. Um... That is, I mean, that not only is that like virtually like how everything gets put together anyway. It's a it's a scientific fact. If you can get enough people to believe that something is going to be a certain way, it's going to be that way, almost guaranteed. So I'll just leave that there. You can leave your 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 comments about me being a conspiracy theorist or whatever on Twitter, which I never check anymore. It's okay. <laughs> Now there's the there's all of that, and then there's the uh there's um one last element to psychological warfare, which we have to talk about because it's 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 definitely something America's dealing with right now. <laughs> We're gonna save America with our little podcast. Uh I, I was a while back I, I came up with a word that I thought was hilarious. Um it was the scrumbler. And it made me laugh because it sounds exactly it sounds it's a word that sounds exactly like what I mean to describe with it. It's like a scramble. It's like scrambling a signal, messing up some code so that something comes in glitched. Um, you get an imperfect picture, you go to a website, and there's a glitch. You play a video game, and somebody teleports through a wall, and then, you know, ragdolls into space, you know. That's like an example of, like, a glitch, and people say they see glitches in the Matrix, and they're It was desync, these... bro. Yeah, desynchronized. <laughs> um, the, uh, the scrumbler, as I call it, is the use of drugs and distractions in psychological warfare. It's bread in circuses, but also it's directed at your deeper mind, right? So what we're dealing with here in America right now, and this is also undeniable, this is a fact, is untold levels of drug usage uh, amongst the population. Untold. And most people, you know, they're casual about it. It's like no big deal. Um, it's normalized to, you know, do a little alcohol, do a little weed, you know, no big deal, just, just fine. And I don't know if you've had any of that whiskey since we've been talking, but I'm talking to you. I, I have not, actually. Oh, wow. The whiskey <laughs> bottle has stayed closed. Okay, so once I finish talking about the scrumbler, you can, <laughs> you can pop that thing open. Um, but basically, if you can keep a, a group that you're trying to influence distracted, confused, shocked, terrified, and drunk all at the same time, you can do whatever you want with them. That's a fact. If you can keep them fat, lazy, complacent, uh drunk uh watching porn watching movies watching like distracted all the time and i don't mean there's i'm not i'm i'm not a prude you can do whatever you want with your life i'm not telling you what to do i'm just telling you it is a it is absolutely a doorway that you know people who are interested in doing things to you will use to get you to do the things they, they want you to do is that fair I'll allow, I'll allow it. Okay. I'm not trying to sound like... I'm not trying to make this scary, but it is what it is, okay? This, you can do the, you can research it yourself. You'll just find the same things I found. Maybe you'll think... I, you can th- say I'm wrong all you want, but it's, it is the way that... It's, it's a known tactic. Let's put it that way. And here's something I found on Wikipedia that made me laugh. Uh, it was on the, the PsyOp page, and this is hilarious. This is, a, this, is un, this needs a citation, which is why I want to debunk it immediately. It says, In order for a PSYOP to be successful, uh, they must... I'm sorry. In order for a PSYOP to be successful, they must be based in reality. All messages must be consistent and must not contradict each other. Any gap between the product and reality uh, will be quickly noticed. A credible truth, in quotes, must be presented, which is consistent to all audiences, end quote. Now, what they're saying there is that if you want to run a psychological operation, you have to have that thing tacked down tight, right? You can't have any conflicting information. You can't have anything that seems weird or off. And if any, like this, is absolutely false, psyops don't have to be grounded in reality. Um, pranks don't have to be grounded in reality. You know, it's like there has to be there has to be some truth in the prank for it to work. Wrong. That's like, you know, it's like a, what was that classic prank? Um, it's, like a, it's like a lottery ticket, like a fake lottery ticket. There doesn't have to be any truth there. <laughs> right? It just just works. It's just a joke. Like somebody scratches it off, they think they won, and then it's, it worked. It's just, they're kind of demoralized now because they didn't win the money, and then they're mad at you because you gave them a fake lottery ticket. So it is false that psyops have to be based in reality. You can just make shit up. Uh, And you can get away with virtually anything, especially if your audience is far enough from reality. Say they're drunk, or they're high, or they're sexually distracted, or they're LARPing as, you know, an ideologue or something like that. They're pretending they're going to save the world. You can tell them virtually anything because they're in a high excitation state, and they will almost always believe it. You wouldn't believe what people can get away with when they're talking to an audience that's excited. And there's a guy I would recommend people look into named Dolph Zillman, who wrote about this in the 60s, uh, '60s, 70s, and 80s. He was born in 35. He's from Poland. Um, but he worked for, um, let's see, what was it? Well, he was an academic. He came up with what's called the excitation transfer theory, which is basically that if you're excited you transfer that excitement to other things. Um, and I've talked about this many times before on the show, but here's a name you can go look into. Dolph Zillman, he was saying, if you get people who are stimulated all the time, especially overstimulated, in any capacity, whether that's with uh, drugs, uh, sexuality, food, um, uh, too much comfort, if you have them like watching violent movies, he wrote a lot about violence in movies, video games, he wrote about uh, sexually explicit content, basically making people really amped what ha- what you get is a lot more violence um now he was run out of he was run out of town and tarred and feathered when he finally decided to come out and say hey pornography's really bad for people <laughs> um which you know say about that what you will but the point is he was a, he is a well-respected writer in this capacity and if you want more information on that i recommend it now we're about to get into really controversial territory because i i I've held my tongue for long enough, and I'm finally ready to say my piece. Are you ready? I'm very, very ready. I mean, uh, 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 do I have your attention? Take what you can get. Okay, well, if I have your attention, and I'm hoping I still... if I I've, Maybe I've earned some credibility with, uh, with the audience at this point. I don't know, maybe not in this episode, but you've seen the past episodes. We, we try to be, you know, good about doing the right research. So, if I have your attention, and if you still think that there's something to this, and if you're not afraid to get into some really, really tough things, keep listening. If you're bothered by this and this upsets you, I recommend shutting the thing off, because it's just going to make you mad at me. Don't shoot the messenger. I'm just going to tell you what works. This is how they do it, and they have it written down in their little books about how they organize these things. Okay, so... Tell me... George, have you ever heard the quote by Mark Twain about statistics? I I think I have. I think I have. Okay.
0: Would you mind? Uh, Is it there? The three types of lies. Yep. Is that the one? That's yeah. The there one. are three types of lies. Was it lies, damned lies, and statistics? That's right.
1: Mark Twain. Have you ever heard uh brother Stalin's, um, quote on statistics? Uh, about death. Yep.
0: Uh the Death of one Man is a tragedy. The Death of Millions is a statistic.
1: Yes. <laughs> <laughs> so what what do we learn from the book 1984? And for the for the
0: record? Aaron did not put those in the not script. I actually knew
1: those. He actually knew them. <laughs> Everybody applaud for George <laughs> So did you ever read 1984? uh I had to read it for school. I remember
0: not liking it and thought it kind of it's sucked. okay it's
1: it's it's not even that good but there's there's one little bit in it okay that's that's rich coming from a podcaster also you know it's you know
0: british people
1: that's true and you
0: know if you want to hear my feelings on that go listen to our ireland series
1: <laughs> yes um so <laughs> one of the thing one of the points in the book that can slip your attention if you're paying attention to the you know the other content that's in there um one of the things that can slip your attention is the statistics being used in the book and one of the things that the the uh Ministry of Truth controls in uh, in that you know Orwellian nightmare is uh, the numbers, the production numbers for that week. So they put out a newspaper every day, <clears throat> and they say we produced six billion you know pairs of boots this week at such and such factory in such and such territory. We also overproduced chocolate last week, so we underproduced it this week, and that's why your ration will be smaller this week. Right? Are you tracking with me? Do you remember any of this? Uh,
0: yeah, vaguely. Um, okay. What was it? Victory gin. What was like the weird, yeah. awful alcohol they drank?
1: Yeah, victory gin, described as oily, by Winston in the book. Um, yeah. So that's one of the things that when you're reading this book, you're like, oh my god! Like, okay, so obviously, you know, because Winston, he said they say we produced fifty million pairs of boots, and he he looks down his at his own shoes, and they're worn out and tattered, and he's like, where did those boots go? And it says, we produce 100,000 packs of Victory cigarettes. And he looks at his pack of cigarettes and, like, one of them... He, like, looks at a cigarette and all the tobacco falls out the end of the paper. Because <laughs> it's all dried up. Um, and old. And he's like, well, these statistics aren't matching what I'm seeing in reality. And that's kind of the point of the whole section, is you can just fudge the numbers or just invent them completely if you want. Which is why we have to talk about numbers and one little uh, psychological tactic called Big Important Number. Or BIN, for short. (laughs) I'm sure you've never heard of the Big Important Number tactic. (laughs) Of course not. It's not like you talk about numbers all the time. Okay, yeah, it's true. 33 Illuminati confirmed. Okay, so (laughs) the use of numbers, statistics, and things of that numeric nature... (laughs) Used in headlines, studies, and reports, are frequently presented without context, and this is where I'm gonna I'm gonna rub some people the wrong way. But I just want you to try to stick with me, okay? Just try to back up, don't get mad, breathe, and try to think about the number of headlines you saw in 2020 that were just numbers, okay? I mean, it was like numbers all year long, right? And I think maybe the least controversial thing I can say is that it got kind of ridiculous how people kept saying numbers of ballots, votes, paper ballots, mail-in ballots, paper votes, ballots and votes that fell in a river, votes and ballots found in a closet. The number of infected, nonviolent protesters carrying ballots to the emergency room who also fell in the river It's just numbers, right? Just numbers, numbers of things. And when you back up and you look at it from a perspective of this is an operation of some kind, the numbers might be real and they might not be real, but did you count them? No. You're trusting the person who counted them, and that's my question. Who's counting the counting? Right? And you can push that back forever. (coughs) So, the reason I had you mention Stalin was the number of people that were killed in most of those regimes were estimates. And those estimates came from records that were messed with, burned, um, falsified, you know, you name it. Like, those numbers went through a lot of filters to get to however many million people Stalin killed. Now, I ask you, and just just answer this honestly for me, because I may be taking this down the wrong road, but I ask you, would it be better for a man like Stalin and his grip over his people, would it be better for him to have killed 10 million people or 80 million people? Which would be more advantageous to a person like Stalin? Well, what do you mean advantageous? Like, which would strike more fear into the world? Well, I mean, 80 million is a bigger number, and big numbers are scary. Right. So, I'm not saying they're fake, don't get me wrong, okay? That's not what I'm saying. I'm saying that if a number can be fudged up and it benefits whoever will, who wants to benefit and controls that media, like in Soviet Russia, it's going to be fudged up. I'm just telling you. That's all. Now, I'm not crying about anything to do with the politics. Nothing. Nothing about this year. I'm talking about numbers. Because when you see a big, important number in a headline, you have to understand that that number is not... What's not important about that number is whether or not it's accurate. Because it might be. It might be true. If you're coming at this from a psychological prank, like it's just a prank bro perspective... It's a total scrumbler, right? It's, it's, the, it's, the, it's the total package of how do I make people get distracted and looking around and like, oh my God, this, this number of things happened here and this number of things happened here. And like, I got to get the source on that. Where's that source? Let me double check that source. Well, that, we know that's a shill website, so I can't dig there. Well, where else am I going to get these numbers? And you know, you keep looking around and looking around and you can't find anything and you're getting all this information and you're not going to believe this but you're thinking way too hard if you're trying to pull from multiple sources, get credibility, if anything that the mainstream's reporting, because you're not going to find it. You're just not going to find it. And the reason it works is so dumb. It's it's like the rabbit being pulled out of the hat, right? It's it Once you see how it works, you're like, how the hell did I ever fall for that? And I may not be able to get everyone there, but I'm going to try. Um... So big important number is it's a classic tactic it has many uses you can make things seem scarier you can pretend something has more support than it does you can grant false legitimacy all you have to do is run the numbers through the headlines you can do a lot of magic tricks with just big important number For example okay let's just let's just do this all right we talk about dead people has about 10,000 dedicated listeners give or take a few hundred right and if i come along to you and i say Like, on the show every day that we talk about dead people has millions of listeners all over the world, and I even released a chart, like, proving it. Most people, I hate to say it, would just believe it. I wouldn't believe it. I know you wouldn't. Now, hold on. If you're smart... You think this probably doesn't work on your mega mind, but if you're focused on the legitimacy of the number, you're completely missing the point and your big brain has failed you. Because the real joke is that we talk about dead people doesn't even have 10,000. Like I said a few lines ago, you probably just ate it because I hit you with my big important number pocket sand. We don't have 10,000 listeners. <laughs> I it's bet what, you didn't like,
0: even... like nine? And yes, I did notice that. I was, I was waiting for a punchline. You're How many reading... listeners do we have anyway?
1: Uh, a couple thousand. Oh, Probably. Five, a, a, well, more like 5,000. That's Are you sure? Yeah, about 5,000. Oh, wow, that's a lot uh, more I, than I, I thought. Have, I have the chart to prove it. Yeah, we have about 5,000 people. I'm just kidding. We have like 1,000 people who listen to it. You see how it works? Well, you just, <laughs> just tell me the works. truth for once, Aaron.
0: <laughs> <laughs> you see how it works? Just tell me the truth. Does anyone listen?
1: Yeah, 2 th- about about 1,000 people listen frequently. That's the truth. Hmm. You don't know though, do you? No, see, I don't know. I don't, <laughs> I don't, see I don't it? like this. I you see like it? this? Do you see what I'm saying? Okay, so that, just to prove to you that I'm I'm not just talking about this. There's a there's a couple of things that are worth talking about, and we're about to wrap up. So this is this is the last magic trick I'm going to run. Um, a man named Barry Ritholtz, um, who's a financial expert in New York, he wrote an article a while back called, uh, or it was about what he calls denominator blindness. In which case, or in which he makes the case that the press often misrepresents financial losses or gains as being much bigger or much smaller than they actually are by leaving out contextual data, either by accident or intentionally. Um, denominator blindness, according to Barry Ridholtz, is like the biggest crime that the media commits on people. It's just numbers with nothing to gauge them against. Right? And he talks about it, of course, in a financial realm because he's a financial expert and he says like if, a, if, a, if, a me, if the media wants to make a company look like it's tanking they'll say you know for example Disney lost however many billion dollars this year they'll say it's in free fall They're, they lost 7 billion dollars they didn't have you know they, they made 7 billion more last year than this year it's in free fall and they leave out the context which is they make a lot more than 7 billion dollars right but they can put together a little chart that shows this, you know, this line moving down and you're like, "Wow, they really fell a long way." And it's just that silly. <laughs> um so anyway, numbers are a big Im- big important number is one of the sort of key things that we have to keep in this age when we're looking for, you know, what's real and what's not. We have to watch out for things like the big important number. Um, And if anybody wants to know more about the magic of big important numbers and, you know, deception with numbers, I would direct them to a book called How to Lie with Statistics by Daryl Huff, which was a book that I read, was recommended only a few years back, but had heard about for a long time when I was studying uh, communications. You can make numbers say anything you want. And if it, and it's not that numbers are useless but the thing that frustrates people like Barry Ritholtz and other financial numbers people more than anything is when they see a chart and they know it's fake it's sort of like when i see um you know something that looks like it's real being posted around like oh look this happened here and it was really chaotic and you can tell it's real because the camera's shaking and it's blurry and i'm just like that's that's got all of the hallmarks of being fake because i know i know visual media right and so it frustrates me more than anyone else when I'm seeing all of a lot of people go, oh, it's real, it's real. And I'm like, it's really not. And they're like, no, it's real and you're crazy. And you're just, you know, you don't believe. I'm like, it's here's why it's here's why it's fake. So yeah, um, Daryl Huff wrote this book basically to get mad at people who were misrepresenting statistics because he knew statistics well enough to know that they could be useful and they could also be just damn lies. Right. Now, I don't have too much to cover. Uh, Left on this, but I just wanted to get this information out because it was really it was heavy on my heart and I wanted people to uh, Get a little context because 2021 is it's not gonna stop guys. It's gonna be the same crap. You just have to get used to Spotting the tactics and being like that's a tactic and when you see a Soviet shooting at you Don't stand there and go ha I see how he's pulling the trigger and now bullets will come out of gun and kill me get out of the way (laughs) <laughs> don't stand in front of the Soviet with the gun. Don't stand in front of the box that's telling you to hate yourself. Get out of the way. Because there's really no other way to defend yourself against this kind of thing. You just have to stay away from it. Uh, until it decides, until they all these people who are running all of this Decepticon nonsense decide to start being credible and nice again. In the meantime, they're fully leveraged against everybody. <laughs> and it's it's not very much fun. Um, I don't know. I have like one more little point, but I don't know if you had anything you wanted to say since we're coming into the 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 landing phase here.
0: uh no, no, I don't think so. Yeah. we should probably probably try to wrap it up. We've been going for quite a while. it's over yeah. two hours now
1: yeah yeah um i'll I'll give it a good edit. maybe it won't be that long. um yes, so I wanted to finish with one last thing, and I just want to tell you all how to conquer the world without firing a shot. <laughs> Uh, capture the minds of most people in the world, get them to believe a thing, and then get them to ad- advocate for it, and you win. You can get whatever you want. It may take a while, but you can get you can get it. So, yeah. So here's a little quote to end on from Sun Tzu's Art of War. All, uh, I will... Should I read it? I shall not read it in a Sun Tzu accent. <laughs> <laughs> Though I feel that the way things are going this year... Um... <laughs> <laughs> not even going to make that joke. In fact, yes, I will read it in a sophisticated accent. So this is from The Art of War. All warfare is based on deception. Hence, when we are able to attack, we must seem unable. When using our forces, we must appear inactive. When we are near, we must make the enemy believe we are far away. And when we are far away, we must make him believe we are near. Yeah. And that's a really old book, so you know it's right. <laughs> yep. Anything yep. else, or should we just close it out?
0: I that I think we should probably probably close it out. Cool. Well, I was just, I was just thinking the believe we are near and we're far away, etc. Wonder if that works with Google. Like, what if the one time they're not actually tracking you is when you're using Google Search Engine? They're tracking you through Probably. your phone and listening every other time, but they don't actually track you through their
1: own search engine. <laughs> Dude, that's a whole another thing, and you are closer than you realize. <laughs> you, seriously, that's pretty much correct. <laughs> wow, look at that. The art of war. Yeah. Wow. Yeah, yeah. You're pretty much correct. That is almost exactly how it works. But that's for another episode. And if we get enough positive feedback, if any, from this little, uh, this little uh, essay, audio essay. Um, we'll do another one, but I just really wanted to get this out because it was it was on me, and I had some information that I thought needed sharing, so there you go. All right, well, thank you. I, I learned some stuff. Cool. Well, let's head to the surface then. <sighs> so, George, tell me. Now that we've talked about <laughs> one tactic of warfare, one kind of warfare, psychological warfare, would you still take over the world with banking, or would you prefer to do it with information streams? Who pays for the information? I don't know. The bankers. I bought this whole up. Ep- <laughs> I bought this whole episode off of a ex CIA operative, so I didn't have to write anything. Um, just so you all know. <laughs> Was yeah, it James? I, know, I can neither confirm nor deny. I've always had my suspicions whether or not James is actually alive, because I, I honestly don't know. <laughs> but yes, um, yeah, I think that I think that went okay. Yeah, interesting.
0: Yeah, yep, yeah, yeah, yep, yep.
1: We'll be back to uh, our regular narrative type uh, programming very soon. And it just it just weighed on me at the beginning of 2021 to get this out and. I've got one coming that's the, the William Tell episode, but I'm also working on another the, one, and I'm sure George is working on something, too. The
0: much-anticipated William Tell episode.
1: It's going to be good. With the context of this, it might make more sense. Yeah. You'll see. You'll that's, all see. Let's not get ahead of ourselves. Well, it's probably still completely crazy, but, you know, hey, if, <laughs> there's not a single person out there who's not crazy at this point, uh, thanks to uh, the Scrumbler. Fair <laughs> enough. Fair enough. Um, well, did you have
0: anything you wanted to relate to listeners before we close out? Uh, no, just that. Yeah, I'm uh, I'm working on a, on a normal episode, and it'll be done soon, so uh, you can yeah you can get back to your regularly unscheduled programming before <laughs> too long.
1: <laughs> yep. Yep. Well, we're all glad you're here. Really, we're glad you're listening, even if there are only 500 of you. I mean, 1,500. I mean. It, we're all glad you're here, no matter I'm how
0: stopped. many... <laughs> I've stopped listening. I've stopped listening.
1: Good for you, you blurt!
0: <laughs> uh. that's, that's how you... The only way to win the game is not to play. Exactly.
1: We're all glad you're here. Glad to have our patrons still on board. You guys are awesome. Um, and we're going to bring the show to an end for today. Back with more historical content. Next time on the pod, if you hate us, you're probably right, so consider funding the show by becoming a patron, joining our little golden horde on Patreon.com, or if Patreon is not your thing, you can always just drop us a teeny tiny tip in Venmo, or a big one, you know, $10,000, $15,000, that'd be pretty cool. Our handle is at WTADP. Our cover art was created by Ian Patterson of Ian Patterson Illustration. You can view more of his wonderfully whimsical work at www.ipattersonillustration.com. With all that being said, we'll close out and let the sounds of the mainstream media play you out. Tell
0: me lies, tell me sweet little lies.